Blessings to you in the name of Jesus Christ. This is Pastors for Pastors, the podcast that supports and celebrates the pastors who lead, challenge, and comfort us, especially in these difficult times. I'm your host, Ken Broman, folks. It's good to be back with you after a few weeks break. I hope you had a safe and joyous Christmas and New Year. We begin a series of programs today on the stages of ministry, what it's like to be a pastor from seminary to retirement and after. Over the next half dozen episodes, we'll be talking with pastors from each decade of ministry. And as a foundational starting point today, we're talking about what's happening in our seminaries. Is enrollment trending up or down? Are seminary graduates finding it easy or difficult to receive a call from a church? And how long does it take to get that first call? Are women having a more difficult time finding a church than men? Is it easier or harder for people of color to find a call? We have with us today the man with the answers. His name is the Reverend Dr. Tim Cargo. Tim works for the Presbyterian Church USA as, and I need to get this right, the Assistant Stated Clerk for Ministry Preparation and Support with the Office of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. His his job is indeed as big as his title. Tim works at all levels of the Presbyterian Church to help them support their seminary students He works with seminaries and in seminary students, and also resources the group that helps make sure seminary graduates are ready to serve a congregation. It is a big job. I should say to those of you listening to the audio version of this podcast, that Tim brought along a number of graphs and visuals to help us see the trends and tracks of the topic. Though there is mention of this or that graph along the way, I think the explanation of what's on those graphs and visuals will still be clear to you. So let's get started. Thought it would be really helpful for us to kind of get a picture of the status of ministry as uh, we we see folks going into seminary and then going into ministry and, and no one has that information more clearly and handily and thoroughly as you. Give us an indication of the trends of uh, enrollment in, in seminary. Are, are more people enrolling? Are fewer people? Has it stayed the same? What, what's the status of those entering into the process of preparation for ministry? Well, what I've uh, got before us is uh, some information that's uh, actually just released by the Association of Theological Schools about enrollment trends over the last uh, 30 years, since 1990. And uh, what they have seen is that, um, particularly over the uh, last uh, dozen years, since about the 2008 economic crisis, but even going back a little before that, it was already trending downward, that the overall enrollment uh, in seminaries has been declining for about 15 years. The thing that's been very interesting to them uh, is that uh, in the fall of 2020, there was a pretty marked increase in enrollment. Um, and what seems to have been a, an important factor in that was the fact that because of the pandemic, the seminaries moved their instruction online. Yeah. And so they're still trying to sort out with uh, some more detailed follow-up with the seminaries to see, you know, are these people who 
um, have enrolled in degree programs or are they simply taking advantage of the fact that um, the courses are available online and so that they have the opportunity to, to do it? Maybe they have even a little more free time because of the pandemic. Uh, they're not traveling and doing other things. What is intriguing to me in that is that, I, and I hope that they will look into, is that they have, the Association of Theological Schools has been telling us for 10, 15 years that the bulk of people who are going into seminary, so more than 50% for the last decade, who enroll in seminary are not planning on vocational service to the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there is the real possibility that this enrollment that was able to click up because of uh, the online availability is not, in fact, signaling anything at all about people preparing for pastoral ministry. It's people who have an interest in theology and spirituality and that, nat- that type of study that are able to take advantage of it now in ways that they couldn't before. Yeah, which yeah. of course in our generation, Ken, you went to seminary because there was a it was vocational preparation, right? And that's becoming less the case. And it may be that the the future of seminaries coming out of the pandemic will really shift to where the the vocational aspect of it becomes a smaller smaller part of what they're doing, uh, where and most of it is really then focused around these questions of uh, self self development and enrichment and, and self study and learning. Right. Well, looking at at the graph, um, the 2020 number is significantly higher, but you you certainly, with all of the extra social uh, issues going on in the past year, it would be really hard just that that one year to sort out what that means, I can see. Right, yeah. And and, and we're not even looking at a full year yet, right? This is just the fall semester for 2020. So we don't even know at this point whether that will be... um, carried out in the in the semester that's just now beginning as we're talking. Talk a little bit about the um, the other reasons people go to seminary, uh, not just this past fall, but that, that other uh, more than 50% who are not planning on going into pastoral ministry. What, what are their reasons for going to seminary? Well, for some of them, it is that they have very specific interests in theology or ethics and how it relates to uh, other vocations that they're in. For some of the folks, it's because they really are wanting to have a theologically informed approach to other forms of service in uh, the, the world besides within the congregation. Um, and so that they're really looking at work of um, what historically we might have referred to as community ministries or social mm-hmm. justice work and ministry, and not into pastoral roles. Mm-hmm. So that's been a trend that we've been seeing. It's been part of what has driven a lot of schools to add programs, for example, in Christian leadership as a degree, or the, the addition of uh, combined degrees in theology and social work, or theology and psychology and counseling. So some of these are long-term trends that have been in place. But then there, again, uh, from my personal experience on the faculty at St. Mary's, when we were giving classes in the evening and so forth and kind of outside the traditional academic full-time student um, time parameters, we just had a lot of folks who just had an interest in theology that were taking it. So there's, there's a whole variety of things that have been going on. 
Um, it is interesting that what we have seen um, is that that may be kind of the, the door in through which they entered the seminary, but we do have folks who, once they are in seminary, they begin to think about vocational service to the church and in congregational settings. I remember uh, several friends that I went to seminary with who who said that they had absolutely no intention when they enrolled in seminary of going into pastoral ministry and uh, took that first whatever class, uh, the one that comes to mind right away is preaching, and discovered that they not only loved it, but they had a gift for it, and that changed everything for them. So I, I know what you're saying. Uh, but when when more than half of the folks who enroll in seminary, and I, I, I saw where you, you said that uh, 40% of Presbyterian seminarians go to non-Presbyterian seminaries, this has to present some real challenges for seminaries in terms of helping to prepare those who are planning on going into pastoral ministry. Uh, I, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a broad range of needs or wants that they're trying to meet. Which is one of the reasons why we've seen a proliferation of the actual degrees that are being offered by seminaries. Um, when I was in seminary um, many years ago, <laughs> decades and decades ago. Uh, we, this, it was a very large ecumenical, non-denominational seminary um, that had actually three schools. It was set up more like a university, but within the, the School of Theology, there was the MDiv. And then we had a Master of Arts that had about two or three different folk, points of focus that you could have. Um, now we've got in seminaries a whole range of MA degrees, uh, and as I mentioned, the joint degrees like in, uh, an MA, MSW, or uh, even um, uh, where I did my postgraduate work uh, is a school that for many years has had a, a master's of, of theology in conjunction with the, uh, the JD, the law degree. Mm, right. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that they're dealing with that is by... Um, diversifying the degree options for those that want to do it. They're also moving into uh, offering a lot of certificates rather than traditional academic degrees. Uh, Johnson Smith's Theological Seminary, a historical African-American seminary in the Presbyterian Church USA, that is their model entirely now. They don't offer any uh, academic degrees. It's all certificate-based. Uh, so that's another way that they're dealing with it. But the, the, the challenge that they have had, is, the seminaries have had, is that their bread and butter, if you will, their financial base, has been that three-year vocational master of divinity program. And as enrollment in that has uh, gone down, they've had to find other ways uh, to be able to provide it. And you do, as you mentioned, you get into this kind of tug of war then. If it, when it was the case that the MDiv was making it possible to do the other things, and now the other things are making it possible to continue to offer the MDiv, the the faculty politics and the budget fights get really interesting. Uh, all all of which is to say that things have gotten uh, much more diverse and and uh, complicated uh, in terms of the 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 multiplicity of needs and desires of students. And therefore, the the need for seminaries to try to meet those needs and desires in order to to have enrollment and have the income and stay stay operational. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the um, some of the slides that you sent me and some of the information on them. The 
the one I'm looking at is the second one you sent me, which is uh, racial, ethnic, and gender distribution. The first thing I want to point out is that uh, the whole issue of gender uh, demographics is one that has gotten much more complicated uh, in recent years. And to be frank, uh, both the Association of Theological Schools, most of the seminaries and the denominations have not caught up yet. So the information that, that I've shared with you it does talk about gender only in the, the old binary categories of male-female. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you used the word diversity a moment ago about the diverse interests that people bring with them or that lead them into seminary. We're seeing diversity in other ways as well. Um, it is the case now that 55% uh, of all of the folks that we have training for ministry in the Presbyterian Church USA now are women. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has been the case that we have actually ordained more women to men, than men to ministry every year since 2010 okay. within our denomination. Um, the, the split right now is about 55-45 across all the different groups. But in the, the uh, chart that I'm showing, I've shared with you, uh, we kind of break it down in two different pieces. One, because um, the non-white proportion of our students uh, st is still a, a, a minority. It's a problematic term in ter terms of referring to folks, but statistically, it's a minority of those mm -hmm. folks. Though one of the things that, that the, the chart shows is that we are now at the case and have been for a number of years where more than a quarter of all of our uh, individuals who are in the process of training for ministry are not from a white background, mm -hmm. do not identify as white. Now, when you consider that we're a denomination that about 90% of its members identify as white, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's considerably more really interesting diversity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the particular slide, if, if for folks who will be watching the video of this, uh, you'll see that the pie chart basically divides out white men and white women, and then the uh, racial ethnic groups of Asian, uh, African American, uh, Hispanic, and then all others. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the, the sidebars at the side then show for Asian, well, what's the breakdown between men and women? Okay. Um, so for Asian, you'll see that there's just a slight bit more men than women. But among black uh, students, uh, there are, as there are for whites, there are more women than men. Mm -hmm. uh, Hispanic is almost exactly evenly split between men and women. And the same is true for the, the others that don't fit into those kind of traditional categories that we've used in the United States for reasons that we all understand historically. Right. Um, what is really interesting, though, is you, if you jump back over to that pie chart and you look... Right now, only 30% of our candidates for ministry are white men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the plurality is white women in the Presbyterian Church USA at uh, 46%. But if you, you know, even as we move more people into retirements, which I think is something we'll talk about a bit later, and so the percentage of women who are ordained in serving congregations rises because there are more of the old white guys like mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. <laughs> that are yep. retiring. Congratulations, yep. Ken. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> um, the percentage goes up. But you can see that there is a significant difference um, between the number of white men and white women 
that we have. Uh, if you just take those, that is a subset for about every two white men that we have, there are three white women. Mm. And that's going to ha have a, a real impact um, on the, the future of ministry uh, in the way that you know, congregations are going to have to rethink about the, their kind of stereotypical first picture that pop into mind when they think about a pastor. This is um, not just a, an issue within white congregations. As we see, it's, a, it's across the board in terms of our uh, racial and ethnic groups. Uh, so persons of color, it's as much the case with them as it is with white folks in terms of the more gender. And you know, we want to celebrate all of those things, but we also need to be aware that um, in our society, these things come with some baggage. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered the term, Ken, pink colorization. I have not. What pink colorization is a term that was developed by sociologists and economists as they look at what happens to professional fields when they shift from being predominantly male to predominantly female. Mm -hmm. So what happened to professional fields when the majority of teachers stopped being men and started becoming women? What happened to bank tellers <laughs> when the same shift happened? And one of the things that they have found is that salaries depress across the board when that happens. Mm -hmm. And they depress not just for the women who enter, but they depress for everybody in the field. Hmm. And so one of the things that we're really going to have to give attention to as we go through this is that our commitments to equality and justice that we bring with us out of our theology, we don't allow these larger social and uh, societal and economic impacts to have the same effect. Right, that right. this doesn't become a way for congregations to say, oh, this is great, we have more women, <laughs> we won't have to pay them as much. Right. But it is very much the case that um, in another 15 or 20 years, uh, if it takes that long, those who are actively engaged in ministry will be pr primarily women and not men. Let's talk about some more of these slides. The age ranges for inquirers and candidates is... is uh, I think the next slide that I, right. I had. Just very yeah. quickly on this one, one of the trends that we had seen from about 2000 till uh, about 2015, so for about maybe even as early as the mid-1990s, so about 15, 20 year period in there, but now is beginning to shift, is that the age of entry into ministry was much later. By the mid-90s and into the early parts of, of this century, that had shifted. Mm -hmm. where the dominant movement into ministry was mid-career, what we refer to as mid-career, people in, at least in their 30s, 40s, sometimes even in their 50s. That has begun to shift back to younger now. Hmm. So uh, right now, we have about 40% of uh, the folks that are in our preparation for ministry process in seminary, and these numbers track fairly well with seminary figures, but the numbers I've shared with you are specifically to our denomination, about 40% are in their 20s. Okay. Now, again, that would have been crazy low yeah. oh, <laughs> when yeah. I came down this path 40 years ago. Right. Uh, but it's, it's actually rising now. When I first started in this position, even just a decade ago, 
the numbers that were in their 20s are only about 32%. But uh, so that now there's there are fewer folks at the higher ends of the age range. But we do have folks, a very small little pie sl uh, sliver there, of 1% who are in their 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got 5% of our folks who are in their 60s who are thinking about going on uh, and going into ministry as a kind of retirement plan. They've been through their business or whatever kind of professional career that they were in, and now they're wanting to leave that. And as they move toward their, their retirement years, they're thinking of ministry as a, a path for what they would do at the end of their vocational life. Uh, but we are seeing a, a narrowing then of that mid-career group, those folks in their 40s and 50s, that's beginning to decrease. It's still a significant number. It's mm -hmm. almost a third, mm -hmm. um, just 29%. So almost a third are still in that mid-career spot, but that's, that's narrowing now versus what we have seen yeah. Um, yeah. in the past, in, in the recent past. And, and all of that for years has interested me in terms of how you project uh, uh, retirement ages and, and um, uh, uh, openings because when a third of the folks in seminary are in their 40s and 50s and assuming they retire in their mid to late 60s, uh, uh, that's only a, a 15 to 20 year period of active ministry uh, and it makes it more difficult, I imagine, to project how many positions are going to be out there for the seminarians who are graduating, particularly a growing number of younger ones who we would assume are expecting to spend their their career, their active ministry years from their late 20s into their mid to late 60s in ministry. Well, I, I know you're interviewing me, but this may, may be a good way to segue into that, that next uh, bit of data that I sent you, which was sure. what we're seeing about the ages of our, our ministers. It was a study that was done by the Barna Group uh, that showed that three quarters of pastors were under age 55 in 1992. In 2017, half were then over 56. So. One of the things that's been uh, a, a kind of foreseen was because of those factors, there was this kind of sense, and uh, there was a lot of conversation in, in recent few years about, are we going to hit a cliff where suddenly we're going to hit a point, and people were typically talking about around 2025 to 2020, uh, 2030, so very soon now, these are conversations that started about five years ago, where there simply weren't going to be enough pastors to go around. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, there are two things that have impacted that. One of which is precisely this thing that I was talking about, about people who have seen ministry as a post-retirement or post-career field of opportunity. So that there are people who are coming into ministry at the traditional retirement age. We're also seeing um, ministers who are retiring <laughs> Um, in terms of their various pensions mm -hmm. and benefit program, but then are continuing. The congregation where my family worships here in Louisville, uh, we recently just uh, completed a period where someone who's a colleague of mine from another presbytery from decades ago had retired, had moved to Louisville, had become a parish associate. When the head of staff did retire, then he became the interim pastor Is and served right? for another two years while that search was going on. Uh, and, you know, so you, we've got ministers who, in retirement, are continuing to serve. The other thing that's going to be very interesting that my colleagues uh, in other denominations and I are talking about a lot is 
what's going to happen to the, to, to the sense of um, the need for number of pastors post-pandemic? Are we going to see where there's going to be more congregations that would be willing to move into a, a shared pastoral relationship than were before? Yeah, because that was most congregations were resistant to that before. Right. Yeah, we want our pastor. We want our pastor here in the room with us on Sunday morning, <laughs> right. uh, leading worship. Right. Well, if if they if they don't all snap back, and there's a lot of things that are saying that you know, particularly as this drags on, is looking much more like an 18 to 24 month mm -hmm. disruption rather mm -hmm. than an 18 week disruption. Yeah. You know, what are we going to see there? We have to think about it not just in terms of just the raw numbers, but what? How many pastors do we need to cover the congregations that we've had? Because we probably are going to go for a whole variety of reasons. Most of it was focused on economics prior to the pandemic, but now as people see that there are these other models of doing ministry and of being a religious community together, I think we're going to see more interest in these kind of shared pastoral leaders, what uh, is sometimes called within the in, within the guild, you know, yoked ministries. Yoked, right, yeah. Where one pastor is serving three or four congregations. So there's a lot of things that are going to affect the demand for how many ministers that we have. A lot of folks are going to work past age 65. Some folks are going to be coming into this work after age 65. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we talked about pink colorization. They're not going to have the financial need in terms of uh, pastoral salary that somebody else would because they've got a pension right. or retirement right. savings. So they can take a little less pay. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're, this is going to really affect this whole issue about the supply and demand of pastoral leadership. I don't want to create the impression that, oh, the, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't consider this. There's, there's yeah. no future in it. Right, right. But... You know, this idea that um, sometimes gets talked about that there's this cliff out there that we're about to we're about to plummet off of, or even this idea, uh, you know, I sometimes hear in uh, talking with, with younger folks who are in ministry or entering ministry about, well, if all the old folk, if the old guard would just retire, <laughs> there would be all these positions. Uh, it's just much more complex than that. What I have done over the last number of years is to look at what in our system is called certification of readiness. Mm -hmm. It's basically, mm -hmm. this is your ecclesiastical approval to go start looking for a call. Right. How long from the time you can start looking for a call does it take you until you are, or, until you are ordained? But what I've been doing tracking for the last six years is how long does it take from the time that somebody gets certification, they're told, yes, you can start looking for a call till they're actually ordained. Mm -hmm. So they, they're in a position and they've been ordained to ministry. And what I found uh, is that um, about a third of folks make that transition in as little as six months. Hmm. Which again, if you know our system of call is pretty amazing. Uh, about 27% within a year. But it's still the case that about uh, almost 60% within 12 months have been ordained from when they can start looking for a call. It's not unheard of that someone might be certified, uh, ready to receive a call. That means they can start looking, um, say, by the middle of their senior year of seminary. Right. Um, and so in that scenario, two-thirds, a little less than two-thirds, 62 percent, 
would be ordained by the end of that calendar year. Let's by the say. calendar year in which they graduate. Yeah, right. Right. So it's just shy of two-thirds. For about another quarter, 22%, so about a fifth, uh, they will be ordained within that next year, okay. which together gets you up to about 85%. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then about 10% um, within the next two years, and about 6% after four years or more. I've broken that out then also on the chart to show how it, what it looks like for men versus women. Mm -hmm. And what you see is that for men and women, the, times, the time groupings are almost identical. So that's, that goes to your point earlier that there's really no, no difference between male and female in, in terms of uh, likelihood of being called. I sent you one right. about racial ethnic distribution. Right. And again, if you, what the, the point there is if you compare those racial ethnic distribution of ordinands to our inquirers and candidates, you'll see that they match up almost exactly. Right. So that means that there's also not a disadvantage right. to them. Right. They are uh, proportionally finding first calls. I also sent you some, some data then about people who are actively seeking. So who are the people that are in the, my database that the Presbytery says they've been certified, but we don't have that ordination date yet? And what we see there is among those who are seeking, it's almost exactly the opposite. There are many more people who have been looking for more than a year. We see so few people who are being ordained after four years. The question that comes to my mind is who are the folks in that 47% or even in the additional 22% who have been looking for a call for more than two years and have not yet received one? Um, when we look back at other data that say there's no real difference between male-female calls, there's no real difference between um, racial ethnic calls. Uh, so who are these people? Yeah, I think the good news is it doesn't seem to be the discriminatory patterns that we know from the past. Anecdotally, what we know is that um, one of the contributing factors, and it's a significant one, is um, people who are limited in where they will seek a call. It could be geographic, it could be financial salary, it could be anything. But the more limitations you put on the position you'll consider, the less likely it is that you'll find a call. And so that's one of the things that, that we've really tried to encourage folks to broaden the way that they think about that in terms of geography, in terms of salary. And then in one other category, which is one of the things you didn't say you were gonna ask about, and this is the thing that I always like to raise. So, um, so that last slide that I sent you is the distribution of our inquiries and candidates versus our congregations. So, so in other words, um, the church that the inquirer candidate comes from, uh, their home church, the size of that compared to the general, general distribution of churches. Right, to the, to the congregations that we have. Now, this is one that the, the, the slide that I'm giving you is specific to the PCUSA, but it's one that I have talked with my colleagues in, in other denominational churches. They, they see exactly the same patterns. 60% of our congregations have fewer than 100 members. Another quarter, roughly, are between 100 and 300 members. Um, another 8% are between 300 and 600. And another, and then the last 4% are more than 600. 
If that's what most of our congregations look like, most of our inquirers and candidates, however, uh, 54% of them come from our 12% largest churches, which means that their experience and idea of what it means to be in ministry in a congregation is different than 80% of the, 88% of the congregations that we might have a place for them to serve. If they're thinking, I'm only going to go to serve a church mm-hmm. like what I have known, they've eliminated yeah. almost 90% yeah. of the possibilities. Yeah. Most of them have had very close personal relationships with ordained members of the staff of those larger churches, which is not true for most of the people in the congregation. Now, somewhat ironically, you're more likely to have that kind of relationship with your congregation if you serve a smaller congregation than a really large one. So they think about the way that the relationship between the pastor and the congregant, they think about it in a particular way that was formed atypically for them in a large congregation, but they think that's where I need to go because that's what I want. Whereas the places they might be more able to have that kind of relationship with the members of the congregation might even be a smaller one. So part of what we need to do is to get folks who are from these larger congregations as part of their preparation to experience pastoral ministry in these smaller congregations and to see, is this really what your sense of call is, even if it's a different picture or basket than what you were thinking of, yeah. a different yeah. context. Um, because this is, it's, and it's not only just because it opens up the possi- more possibilities of places that you might be able to call to serve. It might actually even fit mm-hmm. your sense of mm-hmm. what ministry yeah, is. Yeah, if you if you uh, if you had a, a, a strong relationship with a, a pastoral leader in your home church, and and you picture ministry as having those kinds of strong relationships, you're more likely to have more of them in a small congregation than you are in a larger congregation where you're going to spend more time programming uh, ministry rather than relationship-oriented ministry. And so if your sense really is, I would like to have this kind of relationship with the whole community, that's more likely to be realized in a smaller congregation than in a larger one. But so again, part of what we really want people to understand and to explore is, well, what is it that defines my sense of what it means to be a pastor? If it really is that I walk into the room in these moments of crisis and joy in your life because we have a relationship that we have formed in the study of, in study of the faith and in discipleship, and I'm, I am there because of a previously existing relationship and not because of the name on my title on my business card, <laughs> then there may be contexts of ministry that are suited to that that you just haven't ever experienced because of where you've come from. How much of a factor is money? Uh, the average associate minister gets paid more than the average solo pastor. It is going to be the case that we're going to have more and more folks who are going to be doing, we've used, you know, we use the term entrepreneurial, we use bivocational, a lot of these things where they're going to have two streams of income. Um, that's That may be a part of it. And for some folks, this is, I mean, I, I have a good friend in, uh, in ministry who's out on the plains of West Texas, and one of the things that he loves is that he's serving a congregation that's small enough they can't afford to pay him, but he's in the community and he's a, a paramedic, and he sees that as part of his ministry, and his congregation does as well. If the disruption of what has been the last 12 months now, and maybe 12 more, 
if that hasn't shown us anything else, it's shown us that we have to be able to diversify the way that we think about ministry and the way that we prepare ourselves to be able to uh, do this work that we think God's called us to do. That is the perfect ending right there. Uh, it's going to take more versatility on the part of churches and uh, their, their pastoral leadership. It's not going to be the same old church. Uh, and the no. pandemic, many people have said the pandemic has simply uh, quickened the pace of changes that were happening anyway. And I, and I see a lot of truth in that. Thank you, Tim. This has been fascinating, uh, as I knew it would be. In working through the information Tim shared, I'm struck by the fact that in spite of all the bad news of mainline church decline, Folks are coming out of seminary and, by and large, finding calls to serve churches, often in a very short period of time. With all of the unknowns, as we come out the other side of the pandemic in 2021, there is still a place to serve for those who feel called to walk with faith communities in their journey of faith. It's also great news that white women and people of color, both male and female, are finding calls at the same rate as white men. There have always been and will always be challenges in the church and in seminaries, but it seems there's also a lot to be hopeful about in the Church of Jesus Christ. Join us again next time as we sit down with some seminary students to find out what their lives are like as they prepare to enter the ministry. And thank you for your leadership of Christ's body, wherever you may be. Until next time, I'm Ken Broman-Folks, and this is Pastors for Pastors.